Welcome to the Defenders of Business Value podcast. I'm your host, Ed Meisigland. I help business owners make sense of business value so that they can sell their companies when they want, how they want, and to whom they want. On today's episode, it's going to be a little bit different. You just have me. I'm not interviewing anybody. We're going to talk about, can you sell your business in 2020? Uh, this is off of a webinar that I did in early February, and it was very well received, and it's always a, a hot topic this time of year. So I hope you enjoy it. Certainly, if you have questions or need to talk about the content, just reach out to me at Edit Defenders of Business Value. Enjoy the show. Please welcome. Please welcome. Welcome. This is another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast, a podcast where we talk about what makes a business valuable, learn the tips and tactics to increase your company's value that only veteran dealmakers know. And now here's your host, Ed Misogland. Well, good afternoon and thanks for joining us. Um, my name is Ed Misogland. I'm the managing partner at Indiana Business Advisors, and I wanted to uh, welcome all of you that are are joining us today in our second uh, webinar of 2020, and this is about planning the sale of your business. And we know that for most business owners, it is the largest asset that they own. And so the importance of successfully selling the company is important for whatever you plan to do with yourself next. So we take this really seriously, and and one of the things that we've been doing is we always believe that prepared business owners make the best clients. And that's why we're going to do this episode of our webinar of planning the sale of your business. So let's just get into it. And we get this question a lot on just what is the process of selling a company and preparing it for, for sale. And we thought we would we would revisit this and do a, a walkthrough of if you plan to use a transaction advisor or a business broker for for the sale. This is how it works. So let's get into this. So the first thing is why use a broker? Um, it, it's it's funny that uh, one of the questions that came through the registration is about how to tell your employees that you're selling your company, and that segues perfectly as to the utilization of uh, a brokerage. And one of the things that's of utmost paramount, absolutely, you have to understand is that this is about confidentiality. The cornerstone of our practice is based on confidentiality. So telling people that your business is for sale is probably the single worst thing that you can do. And the reason is, like, if I'm a competitor and you hear that, that uh, someone's selling their business, they're not selling their business. They're, they're going out of business. Employees, you know, they watch too many movies and they see that, um, you know, someone comes in, buys the company, uh, eliminates all the jobs. It doesn't happen at this level. And when I'm talking this level, I'm referring to companies that have revenue of south of of $20 million. I mean, the, the employees make up the value of the company or at least a big chunk of it. And so to tell them that you're selling the company and and certainly there's a, a loyalty thing that you have to contend with. But look, at the appropriate time, you disclose that you're selling the company. But but as far as the sale process, no, you don't. It is it is absolutely the fewer people that know, the better. We And we probably could devote an entire uh, webinar about confidentiality and, and the harms that it can do when a, a breach is made. 
we'll consider doing that down the road. But for for the person that submitted this question, look, do yourself a favor and keep it as, as close to you as possible. Okay, so back to using a broker. Think of a broker is not emotionally invested in in your business. When buyers come in and look at your business and and through the financials and the decisions you made, I mean, it's easy to get emotionally tied to the business. That person is judging me, not necessarily judging the investment that they're making in in through the acquisition of your company. So a broker provides that insulation. It, we're just we're just doing our job. I mean, we're we're selling an investment, not necessarily somebody's life's work. Even though it is somebody's life's work, we're we're just not uh, as emotionally attached to it as you might be. So again, that we serve as that buffer position. We're also able to, and this is probably the biggest thing. We have the the benefit of sitting in the position where we can feel the feedback and we can help distill what is what is really a challenge to the buyer versus what is just posturing. So we serve in that capacity where we're again, we're, we serve as that buffer that we've been doing this for nearly 40 years and 2100 deals done. So we we know what the buyers are are really asking whether it's in a direct or indirect way. And if you don't think that a, a buyer is trying to posture in order to extract information from you, you're wrong. So as we move through this process, having somebody in between, it also legitimizes the process. And when I say legitimizes the process, I'm referring to if you're just going out and saying, yeah, fielding inquiries that your business is for sale, People don't necessarily see it as I'm interested in selling my business. It's more I'm interested in seeing if there's an interest for my business. When we're engaged, we have a motivated, educated seller. And that in the buyer's eyes is a real, real good thing because no one wants to waste time. And buyers these days are coming armed with more and more. When I say armed, I'm referring to They come with appraisers. They come with their accountant and attorneys. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly. When we're serving in this capacity, when we're working with the buyers, we're helping them understand that our client who we're advocating maximum value for, here's why. Not necessarily because that we're trying to take advantage of the buyer. We know that we have to make a win-win deal for, for it to go together. People just don't make as many foolish mistakes as they did 20 years ago when they didn't have the information. Now there's an abundance of information and we, and we when we're sitting and doing our thing, that's what we're we're doing is we're helping everybody understand the risk to both sides and uh, beneficial transaction together. And then the last thing and probably the most important things is it takes time to sell a company. And if if you're out trying to market your business and field the inquiries and and all the things that it takes to sell a company, your business is going to suffer. And I'm going to tell you a lot of the challenges that we that we see our sellers go through. And and I, I'm working with a, a friend now who is coming to us saying I should have engaged you sooner. And the long story short is that in her case, she is going through. And working with the buyer and the buyer just keeps elongating the process. And what's happening with the business? Who's running the business if they're having to work with the buyer? And what ultimately has happened is there's been so much time that the, the buyer has sucked 
from the seller, that revenue has gone down. And you can imagine what the, the buyer is now doing. The buyer is going to go turn around and say, you know what? Your performance is down. We need, really need to rethink about this, this value. And so from our standpoint, what we do is we say, look, you operate your business as if you were going to be unsuccessful, period, end of story. You just do it. Do that and we'll handle everything else. There may be times where we need to to get you involved, but we'll let you know. And it's not as much as frequent as you might think. And so we're fielding those inquiries. And I can tell you that it takes roughly 25 buyer inquiries to get one genuinely interested qualified candidate. And so you can imagine, and that's just to get one. So you you can imagine, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about marketing here in a second, but there's a we go through a lot of buyers in order to find the ones that are qualified to work with you. Now, if you have an abundance of time and you know you want to go through that, I mean that's 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 up to you. But I can tell you that it normally does not work out well because something has to give. There's only some. There's 168 hours in a week. And you can't run your business effectively as well as um, work with a bunch of buyers and their demands. So those are the reasons why you you might want to use an intermediary. So we have in our shop, we have a nine step process. And I'll go through each one of these things that every business that comes through here goes through the same process. So let's start with first. First one is plan and prepare. Like I indicated earlier, we believe that Every business owner that we work with should come to the market when we put them on the market, that they're educated, that they're prepared and they understand the process. They understand how the buyer is going to perceive their business. They understand perhaps some tax ramifications. They are going to understand that just the process that that they're going to go through in order to sell the business. So how do you do that? So as far as planning and preparation, obviously we want the financials to be in good presentable order. And when I say that, the biggest challenge that we we bump into is when financials are a mess and there's so many owner benefits that are embedded so deep into the financial statements that the buyer then has, has some reservation as far as whether or not the financials are believable. Then when you get into a quality of earnings kind of analysis, it's a problem because the the buyer just doesn't literally buy into your tax minimization strategy. So next we want the site needs to be presentable, cleaning it up, um, not necessarily so it's in pristine condition, but so it shows shows well. And here's how the buyer looks at it. Equipment, especially in a manufacturing facility, if equipment is well-maintained, they know that it's going to hold its value. If not, then they're going to penalize someone for, they're going to penalize the seller, you know, that they're likely going to have to make capital improvements because it doesn't appear that the equipment was well-maintained. Uh, next, inventory. You know, if you have if you have slow or obsolete inventory, get it off the books and just just move it out. It's, it's better to show, um, and again, it's back to risk. The buyer sees it and they're like, okay, they... They have a inventory management system that operates well, as opposed to sitting with slow moving inventory. Some of the low cost, high yield improvements, again, right above it with the financial records, cleaning up the books is probably the lowest cost, highest value that you could do. You clean up your books, you may pay a little bit more in tax, but 
at the end of the day, the multiple that you receive is going to be higher and it'll offset any kind of tax implication that you might have. Next, evaluating what does it take for you to transition? And not just financially. I mean, if you transition out of your business, what are you going to do? You need to think about that. And then moving into, you know, what are your post-financial needs? Believe it or not, that's a that's a big one because a lot of um a lot of business owners need this um the sale in order to have the re- retirement that they envision. So we have a couple tools and what we do, and I'll just go here. So our valuation and assessment work that we do. So first we use what's called pre-score. If you think of the deal in in a in a pie chart, and the reason people the deals don't go together, roughly forty percent fall apart because of an emotional attachment or emotional issue related to the business. That look, I identify with this business. I've done it for so long, and I can't. I I just can't sell it. So what we use pre-score for is. It stands for personal readiness to exit. That's what the pre stands for. And that kind of, it's a self-assessment that we walk you through. You know, here's some of the things you need to be thinking about as you, as you are moving to, to an exit. And so we want you to be emotionally ready that when the time comes to sell, you know, we don't want to get down to the 11th hour and, and have you say, you know what? I don't think I can sell this. Not, not only from a, it doesn't do anybody any good. The buyer's mad, the broker's mad, and chances are that the deal that you have won't be better down the road. And so, yeah, we want you to be emotionally ready to do that. Next, we have Value Builder. Now, I serve on the the Value Builder Advisory Board, and, and this is, if you can think of it, um, as a tool that helps you see your business through the buyer's eyes. So there are eight key drivers of value, and this self-assessment talks and delves into each one of them. And so we use it because we want to see how the buyer is going to perceive it. And even though we, we intuitively, just by, by interviewing you and, and working through the financials, we can see some of the challenges, but hearing it from you and the self-assessment really helps us drill down to how the buyer is going to look at it. And then we can make some changes because at this point you can say, look, you know, I'm not certain I'm I'm ready to to do this. I want to grow value. Well, there's some tools that we might be able to help in helping you grow the value. And then the last thing is the business valuation. So the value builder assessment and the business valuation go go hand in hand because in business valuation, there's something called company specific risk. And guess what that is? That is the way a buyer looks at the business. And and it helps me as an appraiser dig into Okay, how is the buyer, what kind of risk uh, premiums or discounts is the buyer going to make when looking at this? And the big takeaway here, aside from the the tools that we use, is with business valuation, it is two things you got to remember, actually three. So the first thing is cash flow. Okay, you have to understand that that valuation is based on the earnings capabilities of the company. Number two is expectation. That buyer is making an expectation that that earning stream is going to stay for quite some time. And then number three, risk. So you apply the three together and that's what determines the value. 
So that's step two. And again, it's back to we believe that the best client that we work with is educated and understands their business, how we see it, how the buyer sees it. Okay, number three, marketing. We compile a bunch of information about your company and this CBR and CBP. Again, back to confidentiality, the confidential business profile, what we call it, is a germane, uh, non-descriptive document that has enough information about your company for someone to pick up the phone or drop us an email or answer one of our ads about the business. And then at that point, we begin the qualification process. But it doesn't say the name of the business, doesn't say the location, doesn't say anything other than, for example, say a manufacturing company in Indiana serving the automotive industry, revenue of $2 million with an adjusted cash flow of a half a million dollars, 15 employees. And obviously there's more text to that and more narrative, but that's the gist of it. It doesn't say the name, but if I'm a buyer, it's saying, all right, I'm, I'm looking for manufacturing. I need I need at least three to five hundred thousand in earnings to for me to make the move over here. So that's the intent with the the confidential business profile. It serves as uh, our teaser to ferret out the buyers. So once we have the the profile done. We also prepare what's called the confidential business review, or some people call it the confidential information memorandum, also known as SIM. And the SIM, what we do is we we have enough documentation. And again, any before anybody sees this, they have to be financially able. They have to have been qualified financially, operationally, as well as have the money um, and execute the confidentiality agreement. So when we when we're working with them, they receive this what's called the CBR, and the CBR has enough information that answers eighty percent of any normal buyer's questions. It answers you know the history. It answers employees. Now it doesn't have names, but it does have roles and compensation. Perhaps how many years they've been with the company. It evaluates customers. Again, it's sanitized. It doesn't say the name, but it does say tool distributor. We're getting half a million dollars in parts from them. We've had the relationship for 15 years and, and things like that. So again, we're not, we're, we're giving them, we're phasing information to them, but it's not a whole lot of information um, that they, that they can use, but it should answer 80% of the questions. And it does preserve the confidentiality as we move, as we phase it out. For example, like I said, employees, customers, suppliers, people that, you know, before I share with you everything, I just want to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. So again, that CBR, it'll answer 80% of any of their questions. So then we're fortunate. We have, um, we have a, a dedicated marketing department that moves us into marketing. And what do, what do we do there? So she prepares all of our outbound collateral that we target. So digitally, you know, we, we've got roughly a 12,000 permission-based assets or a, 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 a newsletter list that we send, you know, prospective deals to, to our buyers. We advertise on roughly 13 or 14 websites. And then we do digital marketing through Facebook, LinkedIn, and you know, some of the other uh, platforms. Again, the marketing that we do or the marketing that she does is intended to maintain confidentiality. 
We want to confidentially expose the business to as many people as possible, but nevertheless, with the backdrop that we have to maintain that confidentiality. In our practice, we would prefer not to sell the business and preserve the confidentiality than blow the confidentiality and may or may not sell the company. Um, Again, it's back to you concentrate on doing the work that you do best and we'll we'll worry about doing the work that we do best. So now we start working with buyers and I alluded to this a little while ago. We present the business to our active buyers, all right? And then we we begin the qualification process and as I said earlier, we need to know who we're talking to. So there's essentially three buckets of of buyers. You have individual buyers, you have strategic buyers, and then you have private equity groups. So individual buyers, think of it as someone that's buying themselves a job and replacing you. That's one set of buyers. And they're first-time buyers. They're not familiar with the process. So uh, from a brokerage standpoint, we are educating them on on the process, the damage that can be done by breaches of confidentiality, how financing works, how confidentiality works, what you can and can't do in a site visit when you're talking to the owner, all those kinds of things. So it requires a great deal of education to help that buyer understand, especially that first time buyer, understand what it is that they're getting into. And in fact, we we joke around here that we talk more people out of business than into business. And you know, it's it sounds great that, you know, my my crappy job is I've had it. I'm I'm done working for the man. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go buy myself a company. Yeah, right up to the part where you realize that you're not only CEO, but you're also the head janitor. And and oh, by the way, did I mention that you're gonna have to pay for your own health care? Oh, all those things that you that you take for granted from a from some larger company. It sounds pretty good when when you start uh, looking at uh, buying a company. And so when we're talking to them, and again we. The reason we educate them that way is we want them to understand what they're getting into. Because again, this is about time. We want the people that we bring you, we want you them to have a bona fide interest in your company, that they they understand what they're getting into. I don't want to I don't want you to <laughs> explain to them that, oh, by the way, you know, it takes 50 hours a week for me to to do this. Oh, by the way, did I tell you that I had to um, all the sacrifices that I had to to make in order to build this company like this. And and the funny thing is then the buyer needs to understand what they're getting into. So then the next bucket of buyers is the strategics. Strategics can be companies, synergistic companies, can be competitors, can be suppliers. Those are the different animal. And what do we have to do with them? Well, we have to protect you. And when I say protect you, it's just because you sign a confidentiality does not mean it's this is like a toll booth where we automatically give you the information um, because you've signed a document that says you're going to keep it quiet. Uh, that it that it doesn't work that way for us when we're teetering working with um, with someone that could really damage the business, like i.e. a competitor. We then take the information and and we we either sit down with you before we start marketing and say, all right, here's all the reasons why these guys might be a good candidate to buy us. Or if a competitor happens to call, now we can sit and say, all right, let's work through this. Let's, uh, why would they want to buy this? You know, and, and then we can go back to the buyer and say, you know what? Um, we're just not 
in a position to share that information with you. And, and we're just doing our job and they go away. Now, if there's a bona fide buyer that may be a competitor, now we can start phasing information out to them, not the CBR. Maybe we just say, all right, here's kind of, here's the company. Here's, why don't we sit down and let's, let's talk through why you want to acquire the company. And then we are able to determine whether or not the, the motives are, are pure. And then lastly, private equity groups, private equity groups are, are professional buyers. It's, um, you know, when they're coming, when, when they're looking at a company like yours, that you're either a bolt-on or you're a platform. When I say a bolt-on, either they have a platform that by adding your company to it, then makes a you know synergy within their portfolio, or you have a company that has enough critical mass that they can make it the foundation of the platform and then start going out and adding other companies to it. Those are the three buckets of buyers and how we screen them. So next, once we go through the screening process, and one thing we should talk about is site visits. And a lot of times we don't, um, when we, when we work with buyers, we, a lot of times now we're doing conference calls, Zoom meetings, leveraging technology to, to have at least that first meeting. Uh, it minimizes uh, exposure to the company as well as it, it just helps, number one, helps our, our client, the seller, um, meet the, the buyer kind of in a, in a, in a neutral position and, or a neutral setting and get some of their questions answered. And then, then if we have uh, a need, we can make the site visit. The site visits tend to happen uh, after hours or before hours. Uh, if it's a business that, like, for example, let's just say a retail business, um, it's real easy to see 90% of the, the operation if you, if you walk in the front door and buy something. So it, it just depends. But again, it's back to confidentiality. Before site visit, you know, we're, we're reinforcing, you know, here's the confidentiality agreement that you signed. Here's what can happen if you breach confidentiality. Here's the damages that can be done. Um, so if you if you are going to go as a customer, go as a customer. Don't ask questions. You don't have to ask questions how many people are coming through the door every day. Um, save that for when we meet with the seller or, or ask us and we'll get that information for you. So once we... We get through the um, through the site visit and the the initial discussions with the our client, the seller. We then move into it's now time to make an offer, and we help the buyer get the offer uh, and understand what the offer is and the contingencies surrounding the offer. Now, one of the things I want to make clear is here's really where our job starts. I mean. If you can think of a when 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 we work with sellers, the leverage that the seller has is substantially higher than the buyer in the deal, right up to here. Now all of a sudden, the leverage changes, the negotiating leverage. So now this now the buyer has kind of a leg up in this that we're moving down the road with them. Now from a brokerage standpoint, we're sitting here saying, yeah, you know what. There's a bump in the road. We're putting this thing on the market and we're going to get five other people just like you. So our suggestion is you probably shouldn't do that. But my point is that our job really begins here, maintaining the leverage or the, I should say, our job starts, our value 
really shines when we're able to maintain the leverage for our clients throughout this term sheet and closing process. So we we facilitate the negotiations. We we work with the the seller's attorney, the buyer's attorney, and everyone else that has a hand in this. And we're negotiating to come up with the framework of a deal. And so hopefully we'll have multiple offers and we can line them up and, and evaluate whether or not um, who's the best buyer. Because what we've found after all these years is that the highest price may not be the best buyer. And again, I'll say that the highest price may not yield the best buyer. And so when we go through the process, we want to to identify, number one, who is the the best candidate and who is likely that's going to continue running the, the business well into the future. So through the term sheet process, that's what we do. We help identify and, and negotiate the framework of a deal. So due diligence, this is, uh, this is a real challenge here because a lot of deals uh, fall apart right here. And that's why I was saying that the, that the integrity of the financial statements makes the job on the back end a heck of a lot easier. And the reason I say that is because now this is where the buyer is, is combing through your documentation and it's pretty much anything's fair game. And for, for the seller, it is a, it is a very, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a challenge because now every decision you make, every financial decision you make, every operational decision you make is now being scrutinized. And so it's, it's, it is takes an emotional toll on the on the seller and from a brokerage standpoint our job is to you know what let's we'll take the information we'll make it available we'll distill the information and and we'll again serve as the buffer between the buyer and seller because what and i was telling you a, a friend of mine earlier was going through this process and the due diligence or quality of earnings analysis that they were going through was just obscene and and time consuming and at the end of the day you know they want to renegotiate even though the, i mean there was no change they they didn't i they didn't find anything there there literally was no change but the buyer again back to that leverage thing they're sitting here saying well you know what i just don't feel as good about the financials as i originally did and what's the seller going to do so this due diligence, and again, due diligence could be a bunch of things, financial, operational, legal, those kinds of things that, that we facilitate. And again, what the buyer is doing at this stage is just trying to understand everything about the business as, or understand as much about the business as possible so that when they go, when they take over, they hit the ground running. Next, what we do is when we, we seal the deal. Um, this is really an anticlimactic component of the job. You know, we're preparing, we're helping coordinate the 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 documentation that memorializes the deal, and we work with all the advisors to 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 get to that point. Whether it's financing, accounting, legal, this is really like I said, it's a signing ceremony. I mean, it's a it's happy ending work, but it's really anticlimactic. Um, getting to this point has been the challenge. Signing the documents is probably the easiest thing that happens. So again, takeaway on seal the deal. Um, it's a, it's a matter of coordination of legal documentation. So one of the questions that uh, we get asked is who does the legal work? 
And so the legal work can be done in a couple different ways. I mean, obviously the seller's attorney can draft the documents, but then it's skewed to the seller. If the buyer's attorney drafts documents, it's skewed toward the, the buyer, or we can use an escrow attorney. Now, on some of the smaller deals, we use an escrow attorney. And basically we say, here's the framework of the deal. Here's what we need you to legalize it. And so they take the document, they legalize it, they share it with the buyer and seller, the buyer and seller can then take it to their attorney and put the fine touches on it. At the end of the day, it minimizes the legal expense. Now, the bigger the deal, you know, chances are it's going to be done by the buyer's attorney. And then we just work out the details as we go. But generally speaking, the smaller the deal, I'd say probably a purchase price of $2 million and south. Uh, we see a lot of a lot of times utilizing the escrow attorney. Okay, post closing, and here's where you share information with the people that need to know. You know, there are different ways to communicate change of ownership. Some have said, you know, this is my new partner. Some have said, this is who has bought the company, and here's the strategy going forward. So when she takes over, she's going to be able to, you know, your jobs are are secure. Let's just say I'm 72 years old. Uh, you know, I don't have the energy to to grow this the way it it needs to, and this person can, and that's why I sold it to her. We spent we spent a, an exorbitant amount of time finding the right buyer that shared the same vision that we do, and this is why this person is, we sold the company to them, and uh, we're certain that that your jobs are secure and. Going forward, it's better for everybody. And then, you know, there's so that's kind of the dialogue for employees. Same thing with customers and suppliers. How you transition, you know, the the seller typically remains for a period of time in order to make introductions and so on and so forth. Businesses sell, you know, there's transitions of ownership all the time. So I don't want to say it shouldn't be a surprise, but having a uh, a transition strategy. On, you know, here, uh, here's how we're going to do this typically works really well. And we work out these details prior to, to closing. And then next, we look at transition from management to the buyer. Again, that's buyer and seller work together with the management team to transition. And then lastly, you know, post-closing issues. I mean, most of the time we don't, we don't see a whole lot of that, um, you know, it's been pretty much well thought out before we got to that point. Um, but again, if there's post-closing questions, normally like this for some of the smaller deals, you know, transferring domains, uh, utilities, things like that. Those are the, the kinds of things that crop up. But again, we're in a position to, to help. We've, we've seen it a hundred times. So that is the nine step process. So let me move to the questions I talked to uh, a little bit about telling key employees and that you should not do that. There's three questions regarding sale price. So we're how to determine it. Our next webinar is going to be how the buyer sees the business. And there's eight key drivers of business value. And we're going to go through those. But for those of you who are interested in business value, I have a podcast. It's called Defenders of Business Value. So if you go to uh, wherever your favorite podcasts are sold, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or iHeart, it's there. 
and it's like I said, it's called Defenders of Business Value. It comes out on Mondays and Fridays. And that's all we do. We talk about business value, what creates it, preserves it, and ultimately transfers it, transfers it by way of a sale, that is. So if you have a specific question on value, certainly reach out to me, edit Indiana Business Advisors. I'm happy to answer whatever I can for you. So thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you found this valuable and we believe that educated business owners are the best clients. So if we can help in any way, please let us know. Thanks so much. See you next month. This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.